you're listening to Just One of the Guys, where if it truly was a day of judgment, I'd want to have this playing on my iPod as it happened. Another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name is Sean Engel, and it's my job to cover the Green Lantern comics, specifically the Green Lantern comics that came out between June 1990 and November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Sadly, like many times before, Guy Gardner is nowhere to be found in these issues. In fact, He probably should have been found in these issues, because this time out we're going to be covering a whole whopping six issues, including, of course, Greenlander number 118, which is a crossover with Day of Judgment, a little story written by a new writer in the DC universe who was just sort of breaking in. He had his start a few months ago writing with Stars and Stripe, and now he's taking on a full-blown month-wide crossover called Day of Judgment, in which the hordes of hell are unleashed on Earth. The DC heroes have to go to heaven, purgatory, and hell to try and save the Earth, and a great hero comes back. That hero being Hal Jordan. However, not as Green Lantern. And, oddly enough, or possibly even ironically enough, the person who brings Hal Jordan back into the DC universe is none other than writer Jeff Johns. Is Day of Judgment a horrible train wreck? Is it the greatest thing ever? Is it something in between? We'll investigate that. We'll also investigate the Green Lantern book, obviously, number 118, which crossed over into the cement and had actually a little something to do with it. However, it probably shouldn't have, because it's basically a tale of Donna, Troy, and Kyle trying to work out their differences. But since it came out in the month when Day of Judgment came out, well, you kind of had to link things up to that epic, epic crossover. But we'll be getting to that as soon as I get done with picking out some promos, which I'm going to play in this podcast promo break. So after we get done with that, we'll take a look at Greenlander number 118, and then we'll dive into coverage of the entirety of Day of Judgment. Stay tuned, folks. Sister, 
now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. And transparent freaks! Two! I'm on the circus. <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. It's a super prize package worth $9,388. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! And now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. Thank God damn lucky he didn't kill all. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Yeah, because she thought you are some kind of freak. Now, come on, let's she go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! You're the issue. I say shut up! It's a man home! A man home! Tangent. An abrupt change of course. Tangent. To go off suddenly in another direction or on a different line of thought. Tangent. A comic event featuring brand new characters with very familiar names. I'm waking up to action dust. I wipe my brow and I sweat my rust. I'm breathing in the chemicals. Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Find it bi-weekly on iTunes and at greatcrypton.com. In the Tangent Universe, you only know the names. And we're back. And what you heard there was a new promo. A promo for another podcast I'm doing. Podcast I'm doing with Michael Bradley of Superman and Batman fame. Yes, it's going to be a show about the Tangent Comics. I've actually... We actually haven't recorded one show yet as of the recording time of this, but we're going to be doing it pretty soon, and 
probably by the time this show is released, we'll have some episodes out. But let me say, I've read the first couple issues of it, and boy, am I enjoying it. I think it's going to be a fun show, and I really hope that you'll take a listen to it. But of course, I really hope that you'll take a listen to this. My coverage of Green Lantern number 118. Green Lantern 118 was cover dated November 1999 and released on September 1st, 1999. It had a cover price of $1.99 US and 325 Canada. The title was Women. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Daryl Banks, inker was Annabal Rodriguez, colors and separations were by Rob Schwager, the letterer was Chris Eliopoulos, the assistant editor was Harvey Richards, and the editor was Kevin Dooley. Our story opens with Katie Lang dressed up as Green Lantern and Donna Troy engaged in a passionate kiss. Wait, what? That's supposed to be Kyle? Really? Okay, whatever. Fortunately, this is all a dream, as Kyle's current girlfriend, Jenny Lynn Hayden, snaps him out of his wide-eyed stupor. Donna tells Kyle that she heard through the superhero grapevine about his gallery showing, and decided this would be as good a time as any to come and have a talk with her former lover. Kyle suggests maybe doing something later, and at this time, Jenny steps in and formally introduces herself. Kyle tries to whisk Jenny away, but Jenny is having none of it, saying that they had plans for later tonight, and as soon as Donna walked in the door, Kyle completely forgot about them and her. Kyle tries to plead his case, but Jenny isn't willing to listen as she walks out of the gallery. Realizing that he done messed up, Kyle renews his conversation with Donna, leaving the exhibition behind and walking it through the streets of the village. Eventually, the small talk runs out, and the duo find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. Donna regales us with her journey from hero to non-hero and back again, and how the death of her husband and child affected her. Cal understands the hurts of the past, but tries to focus on some of the good times when he sees a book that the two were looking for when they were together. But Donna comes clean and says that she hardly remembers anything about her past life. In fact, most of her memories come from what Wally West knew about her. The rev- this revelation completely messes with Kyle's head as he completely remembers the relationship and how it grew over time. In fact, he's a bit bummed that she came to him at a time when he was over her and in another relationship. Donna then mentions that she too is in another relationship. With Speedy, the most unfortunate named Titan you would want to have sex with, which might be why he changed his hero name to Arsenal. Cal accuses her of hopping in the sack with the first hero she lays off, laid eyes on, and Donna turns the tables right back on him. Of course, this cues the rain to start falling, Cal to offer his coat to Donna, and the two to draw near for a loving kiss. But even Cal's attempts at tonsil hockey can't bring back the memories of their past romance. So the two part ways, leaving Cal to walk home in the rain-drenched streets. Luckily, Cal doesn't have to walk home, as he's Green Lantern. Unluckily, as he flies into the Manhattan skyline, he runs into a floating Sabrina the Teenage Witch wannabe who zaps him with her magic powers. Telling Kyle that she's called the Enchantress, the green Garb gal blasts our hero into the side of a building, causing this issue's amount of Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, to begin. Kyle fights back with a construct broomstick, a fighting monk, and some pumpkin bombs until he subdues the Enchantress and asks her just what the heck is going on. Cryptically, the Enchantress replies, The end of the world, of course. 
Back at Kyle's apartment, dejected Jenny looks out onto the rain-strewn city. Turning away, Jenny grabs a pencil and paper, writes a note, and leaves the apartment. The note saying for Kyle not to bother looking. Once again in the book, we get another story that has the Green Lantern aspect of the book as almost an afterthought. In fact, if this weren't a crossover with the Day of Judgment storyline, I doubt that we'd get any Green Lantern in the book. Which, by all accounts, is fine by me. I know that Donna was supposed to be the love of Kyle's life, but he's really acting like a jerk with Jenny. I commented on the last show how Mars and Banks seem to be taking cues from friends both visually and literally, and this just seems to be more of that. And of course, not in a negative way. Uh, Friends at the time was a very popular show, and taking hints from that is actually kind of works in this comic, so I don't have a problem with it. But heading into notes, we'll go ahead and start off with the cover, and I've got to kind of wonder, why is this cover taking in place in front of the crisis? Because all we see in the background is giant orange clouds and lightning strikes and Everything has that look of, you know, the crisis happening there, so wondering why that's happening. Plus the image of Donna and Jenny catfighting, although enticing as it may be, never happens in the book. And although Kyle is in the middle sort of holding them apart, the look on his face is kind of like, well, it's not a look of concern. It's more of a look of, hey, I'd really like to see this happen. You know, maybe them, you know, fight and scratch each other for a little while, rip a bit of clothing in certain particular areas, you know, realize that this was all a bad idea, and then start into a hot make-out session. I think that's kind of what's on Kyle's mind. At least, that's what I see from this cover. Moving into the book, page one, I am deadly serious. This looks nothing like Kyle kissing Donna. The face is far too feminine, especially in the eyes. It it really does look like it's a girl kissing Donna, so it makes me kind of uncomfortable. And kind of excited at the same time. Pages 2 through 4, Kyle is just being a complete ass throughout all of this. First of all, on the first panel on page 2, he's just gawking, mouth open at Donna, while Jenny sort of waves her hand in front of his face. Then... Kyle completely ignores Jenny and walks right up to Donna and starts talking to her. And Kyle really doesn't notice Jenny until she introduces herself to Donna. Wherein, after that, Kyle sort of takes Jenny aside and says, You know, let me deal with Donna. I know we had something to do with you, but I really want to talk with her. You don't do this with someone that you're in a relationship with. No matter who the person is that you're dealing with. I don't care if it's a superstar model that you dated prior to this. Wrong. Very wrong for the character of Kyle. And hopefully there'll be some repercussions for this. Page 5, panel 4. We've got this sort of image of Donna giving a kind of flirty face, and 
Right now, we don't know that Donna doesn't have her memory from being with Kyle yet, so this makes her sort of flirty look that she's given to Kyle seem kind of conniving, and it it doesn't sit well for Donna. It makes her seem that she's trying to break up this relationship. Moving on to page seven, we get an image of Donna Troy in her in her outfit that she wore to the party, sort of it's a kind of model pose with her pulling her hair up and crossing her legs and looking very alluring. But in the background, we get a sort of flashback scene in the various iterations of Donna Troy with her being Dark Star, her two Wonder Girl costumes, her Troya costume, the sort of dark outfit with the star field in it. It's it's all really nice. It's really good artwork by Banks. And I think Annabelle Rodriguez, who does the inking on this, definitely helps with the with the artwork in here. So Good stuff here. Then we get to page nine, where Donna says that basically she has no memory of her being with Kyle. In fact, the only memory she has with Kyle is what she's gotten from Wally. I can only assume that there was something that went on in the Wonder Woman storyline where things were rejiggered around with the character of Donna Troy to try and bring her more into continuity that just messed up her mind, so... This is really a disappointing thing. It's got to be disappointing for Kyle because he has these feelings for her, but she can't reciprocate in any way because of whatever happened to her. She feels no bond, no kinship, no romance towards Kyle other than what has been told her by other people. It's kind of disappointing. Of course, it doesn't help on page 11 her saying, oh yeah, that uh, Donna Troy is banging Speedy, so... That's kind of a even bigger downer, but I guess for her it works well because it's only physical, and I'm certain Speedy knows how to get a hold of some really fantastic drugs that really help make the sex just really amazing. So there you go. Pages twelve and thirteen, we keep the rain starting to fall, and then Kyle giving Donna his coat, and then Donna and Kyle kissing. So all cliches accounted for. There you go. But that pretty much ends the storyline and brings us into the storyline that deals with Day of Judgment, where Kyle meets up with the Enchantress for whatever reason, because, well, she's floating around New York City. So, like I said, it feels kind of out of place. It feels kind of forced into the issue that was primarily about Donna, Kyle, and Jenny in this bizarre love triangle. Sorry to bring up the New Order song, but whatever. But... I I guess this isn't completely outrageous, and it actually does play a pretty important point in the Day Day of Judgment storyline, so I guess it kind of had to be here. But the story is wrapped up, finally, by the last page, page 22, with the image of Jenny looking out the sort of rain-strewn window and writing a letter to Kyle, saying, Kyle, I waited for you. I guess you had better things to do. Don't bother to come look for me, Jen. So... It looks like Jen is moving on, and that's kind of disappointing because this was, again, another relationship that grew organically throughout the story. It wasn't one that just sort of came in and suddenly they're dating and that's what's happening. Mars was able to grow the relationship over time, and the fact that it's ending because Kyle was really being such such an idiot and 
still pining for his old girlfriend just makes it kind of depressing. And again, it's one of these things that I don't think you see that often in modern comics. You don't see the sort of real life down to earth drama. It's all action, 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 big events, big events, crossovers and all that. And this is kind of the stuff that makes these stories and makes this era of comics for me, really enjoyable to read. But that does it for notes for the book. Let's go ahead and take a look at ads. The front inside cover is another ad for Powerade, the Coca-Cola version of Gatorade. And it looks like they're filming everything through a bottle of Powerade because everything has got this sort of blue, almost matrixy type look. If you know what I'm talking about, the Matrix films always had this sort of green haze to them. That's kind of the way this image has. Uh, it's a sign of the 90s, I guess. A few more pages in, you get the same spree ad with the tongue with the Kick Me sticker on it. Then you've got an ad for Star Wars Pit Droids. And oh yeah, I guess uh, Episode 1 had probably made it out by now. And now the games coming out from Episode 1 were there. So you could play on, what is this? I don't know whether it's, I think it's for the PC. Just says it's E for everyone. It doesn't say what it's for. It might be from the Nintendo system, but it's got an image of a very shocked kid with the top part of his skull lopped off and pit droids roaming around in his brain. Great way to sell a game. And this is completely annoying, and not in the middle of the book, but the next ad is a full-page pop-out Three Musketeers ad that's a... A fold-out page, and it's supposed to be, again, you know, like a movie poster with the three uh, ethnically diverse musketeers, so yeah, there you go. Then on the other side of it is Tink Tank, or Tiny Tank, which I guess is another PlayStation game where you play a tank and shoot things. Again, I have no idea, never owned a PlayStation, so couldn't say if this was good or not. Then there's an ad for Tostino's mini pizzas and pizza rolls with some of that obnoxious sports artwork like I was talking about for the Coca-Cola ads. Except uh, you, I guess you can collect these and win NFL players VIP football weekend, including a four-day, three-night trip for four, uh, dinner with the NFL players, and tickets to a football game in Atlanta. Ooh. With such uh, luminaries as Eddie George... Who else? Mike Alscott, or Alstott, I'm sorry, John Randall, Charles Woodson, and Marshall Falk. Falk, yes. Do you know any of these players? Neither do I. The next ad is another ad for, I guess it's some skater doing crazy skating stunts against a white background on the side as it looks like a film strip. And uh, I guess it's for the partnership of the partnership of, for a drug-free America, where the skater is saying, "This is my idea of getting high," and his idea is obviously skating against a cloudy background, and then have it being projected as a film strip. So there you go. Don't do drugs, kids. We get the all-red eradicate Coca-Cola ad. The Daleks would be proud. Then we get Apocalypse Pow, Superman and Savage Dragon Metropolis. Hopefully Mike Bailey and uh, Jeffrey Taylor will be covering this sometime soon. Uh, it looks interesting. The uh, doesn't say the story. Oh, the story is by Carl Kessel and John Bogdanov. So, yeah, Bogdanov does a pretty good Savage Dragon, I'd say. You know, 
both I think Bogdanov is good at drawing the sort of beefy looking characters, so Savage Dragon should really look well for that. Got another ad for the Sony mini disc, a little different this time with the instead of showing what the mini disc are, it's just a giant pencil eraser, uh, erasing songs or erasing words that say love it, hate it, so yeah, mini-disc never went anywhere. An ad for GTA 2, uh, we talked about this before. It's the top-down version of GTA where you drive around in a car and shoot people. Hyper-violent. Another Sprite ad where you can cut out the bottle of Sprite and the dialogue underneath it and place it over your favorite comic book villain. Yeah, that's good. The uh, Shadowgate 64 game, Trial of the Four Towers for the Nintendo 64, an RPG on the on the Nintendo 64 that isn't one done by Square Enix. It's done by Chemco and Infinite Ventures. Vactical Entertainment? Ugh. It's it's Lord of the Rings slash Final Fantasy slash whatever. And then if you remember a few weeks back, uh, we did uh, talked about some advertisements for Family Guy and Futurama. Well, this time we get another animated show that really didn't do as well as either of those shows. In fact, I barely even remember what the plot line of it is about. It's an advertisement for Mission Hill, which actually, uh, I guess, was counter-programming to Futurama and Family Guy because it aired on Friday nights on the WB. Never went anywhere. The back inside cover is an ad for L2 oh, L2 jeans from Levi's, and you've got, looks like members of the Offspring, basically, hawking Levi's pants that you can buy at Sears, Goodies, Kohl's, and Mervyn's. There you go. And the final back outside ad is an ad for Kellogg's Corn Pops with a police line covering it, so I guess someone has murdered someone because of Corn Pops. Don't eat Corn Pops, kids. You'll murder people. But that does it for the uh, magazine. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and I hope you guys will enjoy what's coming up next. It's a five-part storyline done by Jeff Johns. In fact, the first Jeff Johns, and probably the last Jeff Johns thing, I will do on this show. Well, unless he pops up in one of the ancillary books. Yes, it's Day of Judgment, and we're going to be talking about all five issues and what's going on with it, and whether or not it was a good idea to bring Hal Jordan back into the DC Universe. For the first time. By Jeff Johns. We'll get to that right after these messages. Well then, uh, Scott, can you do me a favor? What's that? I've got an episode coming. Let's see. It's called Magnus Remembers uh, Superman Returns, so uh, don't listen to that episode. It, this is all kind of, it's all part of my Superman Begins like miniseries that, I, that I'm that uh, i going through, or was going through. This is all part of the uh, lead up to Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray, right? Mm-hmm. I've got two little interludes. Uh, the first... Lucy, shut the f*** up! <laughs> Sorry about that, it's the dog. <laughs> Brendan's Magnus punches reality at twotruefreaks.com. Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at twotruefreaks.com. No animals were harmed in the making of this promo. My name is Michael Bailey, 
and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I, well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. And we are back. And before I begin this coverage of Day of Judgment, I would like to apologize. The last episode, I said I was going to have a guest star on the show, and unfortunately, things just couldn't work out. Um... The person who was supposed to be on here has had a few problems. Uh, he's actually, actually, the problems are really good ones. Uh, uh, to pull back the curtain, it was Thomas DJ. He's actually scored a new job that he's very busy working at. Plus, he's got a lot of stuff that he's doing on his uh, new novel that he's working for the Shadow Legion. So he's doing a lot of writing, a lot of working, and he just couldn't make it to the record unfortunately it's it's disappointing but i know i'll definitely have thomas on for another episode in the near future so if you're missing thomas uh well i apologize for him not being here it it would have been great to have him here and have him talk about this but unfortunately he's doing well with work and everything so i'm i'm glad to hear that's going well for him so again i apologize for for misleading anyone saying that you know we'd have a guest spot here but Thomas is, is doing tons of stuff on his own, and his career is going going really well. I'm glad to hear that things are going well with him, and we will have him back on in the very, very near future. But for now, let's go ahead and try and muster on through Day of Judgment all by myself. And I don't know why I called myself plural in the beginning of it. Anywho... Day of Judgment number one was the first part of this story. It was cover dated November 1999 and released on September 1st, 1999. The cover price was $2.95 US and $4.50 Canada, and the title of this outing of it was called The Summoning. For all of this, the writer was Jeff Johns, the penciler was Matt Smith, inker was Steve Mitchell, colorist was James Sinclair, the letterer was Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and the editor for this part of the story was Kevin Dooley. The story begins as Etrigan frees the fallen angel Asmodel from his imprisonment in hell, and then tricks the Spectre entity, without a host, into joining with him. Now imbued with God's own divine powers of vengeance, 
Asmodel swears to take vengeance on the Presence himself, beginning by destroying what has been created in his image, the peoples of Earth. His first act is to freeze hell over, including Neron, before wrecking havoc on New York City. Up on Earth, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner and the Enchantress, only recently have escaped from her mental institution, are the first to meet the rampaging specter, as him and a massive host of demons pour forth from the ground underneath Manhattan. Kyle calls in both the JLA and the Justice Society, but the specter defeats them all magically, passing judgment and going so far as to transmogrify Superman into a literal pillar of salt. He also catches the quintessence, spying on them from their domain, and negates them from interfering with his actions. Having, having received a premonition of the chaos, Zatanna magically teleports around, assembling a who's who of magical heroes to team up against Asmodel. Finally, they join together as the Sentinels of Magic and prepare to fight him. And that ends issue one. I'll kind of go through all of these sort of in a kind of a lump sum here because I don't want to get too much into them because I've got, you know, like I said, five books to cover. Overall, I really like the story. It's starting out really good. I enjoy the idea of the Sentinels of Magic. Um, the only problem that I'll probably have with this series is the art. Not that Matt Smith is a bad artist. I mean, he's a great Doctor Who, I'll give him that, but... Oh, wait, wait I think that's a different Matt Smith. Anyway, it's not that he's a bad artist, it's just his artists, his artistry is more aligned with what you'd see on a webcomic. It's... It's not bad, but it just doesn't seem professional, and it doesn't seem at the level that you'd want to do for a storyline involving angels and demons and essentially a, a sort of analog of Dante's uh, Inferno, Purgatorio, and uh, Paradi Paradiso trilogy. Like I said at the beginning, the writing is actually what's really good about this. Johns, who only started writing for DC about six months ago has got this incredibly this incredibly deep storyline dropped in his lap to tell a tale of basically demons inhabiting the earth hell rising up to try and destroy it a fallen angel trying to get back at god himself and the heroes of earth having to deal with it plus in the end we find out that the Spectre is, is involved, and the Spectre is God's hand of vengeance. So, since Jim Corrigan is no longer, no longer inhabiting the body of the Spectre, there is basically no one to take control of him, as Modell does, and it, it makes for an interesting fight between Earth superheroes and this incredibly powerful being. I've got a few notes for the story. Uh, First of all, on page three, I've got to say, I never warmed the character of Etrigan, who's a big part of this storyline. And it's not because of the character himself, but because of the fact that he's supposedly a rhyming demon and can only speak in rhymes. That limits him as a character, because quite often people just think that rhyming means that you say a few sentences and then have a word at the end and then you say a few more sentences and you have a word at the end that sounds similar to the word that you had at the end of the prior sentence that's not right there's a structure to it there's a a beat sequence to it and a lot of times 
writers don't get that. And even though people may credit Jeff Johns with being a great writer, even he doesn't do a good job with writing good sentence structure or writing good rhyming structure for the demon here. Page seven, I thought it was a nice name drop as we see the sanitarium that the Enchantress is being held in is named after John Ostrander. I thought that was kind of neat. Page 11, panel 2, as we get sort of the analog that we saw in Greenlander number 118 here in this book, the fight between the Enchantress and Kyle Rayner, the Enchantress drops a line, uh, I've been cooped up in someone else's subconscious for a while, but whatever happened to him, you could use his help right about now, as she's referring to the previous Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, kind of seeding what might come along in the later parts of the story. Then moving on to page 18, we get a little hint in the artwork as we see this sort of shaded mystic realm. We see characters here who eventually will come more into the light and we'll figure out who these characters are. And one of them is obviously the person who's going to play a big part in the rest of the story. Plus on this page, you get to see the quintessence, which if you don't know who that is, it's basically five mystical, powerful beings that sort of I guess kind of like the Watchers. Uh, there's an analog in the Marvel Universe that's supposed to be like them, but I can't right off the top of my head remember what they're supposed to be. But essentially, it's Ganthet, the Guardian of the Universe, the Wizard Shazam, the God Zeus, uh, the High Father Isaiah, and the Poutine-loving Phantom Stranger. Which for me, is one of the things that just, one of these things is not like the other. And maybe it's just an indication of how awesome the Phantom Stranger is, but for me, not knowing that much about him and just sort of perceiving him as the guy who comes to the DC Universe and says, bad things are going to happen, and then disappears, it just amuses me that he's part of this group of five nigh-omnipotent beings. So, there you go. Then throughout the rest of the book, like pages twenty nine or pages nineteen to twenty nine, we get Satana popping around all over the DC universe and assembling the Sentinels of Magic, which uh, includes Alan Scott Sentinel, obviously Doctor Midnight, Satana, Deadman, Ragman, Raven, Doctor Occult, Madame Xanadu, and Faust, who I guess is the son of Felix Faust, the uh, the bad guy of the JSA. So. And it completely makes sense. If you're going to take on a mystical being such as the Spectre, you need to know have people who are accustomed to mystical arts. And since these are most of the characters in the DC Universe who are that, having a essentially a JLA of magical beings is just really kind of a clever concept. But that leads us directly into Day of Judgment number two, which was done by all the same people, except this time the editor was Dan Raspler, and the title was Lost, Lost Souls. It was released a week later on September 8th of 1999. And the synopsis goes thusly. Madame Xanadu and Zatanna bind some of the rampaging specter's energy into Xanadu's crystal ball, forcing him into a minor retreat with Etrigan. Then attempting to take the initiative against Asmodel, the heroes divide up into three teams. A group led by Wonder Woman, consisting of Zoriel, the Earthfallen Angel, Raven, Supergirl, Mr. Miracle, and Sentinel travels to Heaven to attempt to convince Jim Corrigan to rebond with the Spectre entity. Superman leads a team down into Hell to restart the Hellfires, 
consisting of Green Lantern, Firestorm, the Atom, Zatanna, Faust, and the Enchantress, possessed, of course, by Deadman. Batman and the rest of the heroes stay in Manhattan to continue the fighting the demon onslaught. Captain Marvel, Stripe, and Starfire are sent into outer space to receive, retrieve the Spear of Destiny from orbit, the only weapon capable of actually harming the Spectre. In Hell, Superman teams fight Cerberus, then reaches the River Styx, not the Band, and Wonder Woman's team is unable to get Corrigan to leave Heaven, but St. Michael redirects them to Purgatory, where he suggests that they might be able to find more capable souls. There, they offer, they're offered assistance by a number of bygone heroes, most predominantly Hal Jordan, the former Green Lantern. And here, of course, is where we get the, the person who's going to play a major role in this storyline. Obviously, John's had a, a liking for the Green Lantern, or for Hal Jordan as the Green Lantern character, and he's wanting to try and give him another chance at redemption here. But, uh, will he be able to? I guess we'll just have to find out. Um, for notes for this, I don't really have too many. I think on pages four and five, Zarya, who, yes, is an angel of heaven, is kind of a jerk by dismissing Wonder Woman and her acceptance of Zeus and the Greek pantheon as quote-unquote gods. It's just one of those things where it, it's kind of akin to Batman saying, oh, I can understand aliens being on Earth. That's that's completely understandable. What, vampires? No, I can't buy into that. Well, you can buy into these supernatural things. Why can't you buy into these other supernatural things, Zoriel? Maybe there is more than just your god. Just maybe your god's more important to you. Can't we all get along? Page six, we get Firestorm coming into the story a bit more, and this is one of the times where I wish I knew more about Firestorm from this era, or wish that Shag might be listening and could probably write in and tell me what's going on with this, because Firestorm here doesn't have any knowledge of Professor Stein. Was Professor Stein no longer a part of the Firestorm Matrix at this time? Because essentially Firestorm is having to use the Atom, as his kind of Professor Stein to kind of give him the impetus of how to make the elements that would recreate the fires of hell. So I have no idea what's going on with the character, unfortunately. Page 10, this is an example of uh, how Jeff Johns really is very respectful of these characters of the Golden Age, in that we see various members, deceased members of the JSA are actually in heaven, and they're, they've had their final reward. We see the Atom, we see Dr. Midnight, the Hour Man, and uh, Mr. Terrific, all standing here at the pearly gates, and it's a really nice image. It's, it's, it's a great concept to know that these heroes have gone on to their final reward and actually are living a good afterlife, I guess. Page 13, the Catholic boy in me really likes the fact that the Archangel Michael tells the heroes that they should go to Purgatory to try and find someone to inhabit the body of the Spectre. It's it's nice that they're using all these different levels of, of the idea of heaven and hell and Purgatory, of places where these heroes can go to find lost souls. It's great. However, there is kind of one thing that I find unusual is that the voice of the presence or 
what I guess is supposed to be essentially God at the bottom panel calls to Michael to come to him. He says, Michael, we'd like to have a word with you. Wouldn't that be more I'd like to have a word with you if it were actually the presence? Is this a misprint or is this saying that there's more than one deity in heaven? Hmm. Think about it. And then moving to page 15, I do find it cool that Superman would be the only person, whether he be knowledgeable enough about you know Dante's Inferno or whether he can actually read Latin, that he knows that the phrase is abandon all hope, ye who enter here, the actual phrase on the doorway to the entrance of hell. That's that's kind of cool. It it bumps up the cool meter on Superman. Not that his cool meter needs to be bumped up anyway, but it just shows how cool he is. But then on page 18, when I praised the Phantom Stranger earlier and his part in the quintessence, now I've just kind of got to wonder what he's doing. I mean, he seems to be doing his typical Phantom Stranger stuff of just standing around and telling people stuff, but kind of being ineffectual. Plus the fact that all of this is going on on Earth in the middle of New York City, yet Guy Gardner is nowhere to be seen. I mean, Warriors is supposed to be a big part of New York City. Kyle Rayner is supposed to be a big part of New York City, and he's playing a role in this. Even just a little cameo of Guy blasting away at someone as Warrior, I think would have, for me, it would have made it enjoyable. It just makes no sense not using a character who is located in the city. I mean, if this were Gotham, don't you think there would be more Gothamites? You know, more members of Batman's gallery coming out to help out with this? If this were Metropolis, don't you think you'd see the Guardian and members of, you know, Lex's Lexmen or the, 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 the Metropolis Special Police Forces? So why is Guy Gardner not here? disappointing but we get to the final page page 22 and we got this pretty nice picture of Hal Jordan shaded in his parallax uniform and it's not as ridiculous as prior iterations of it Hal looks pretty good but the white stripes aren't there so obviously he can't be possessed by parallax maybe it's because he's he's in purgatory now and parallax can't get him there that's why but that finishes up number two. Let's move on to number three that came out one week later on September 15th of 1999 and had a title of Choosing Sides. We've got the same people, Jeff Johns, writer, Matt Smith, penciler, inker, Steve Mitchell, James Sinclair, colorist, Richard Starkings, letterer, and editor Dan Rasper. The battle against the Asmodel-possessed Spectre in New York City takes a turn for the worse as the Spectre fuses the Phantom Stranger's eyes and mouth shut. But out in space, Captain Marvel, Starfire, and Stripe reach the location of the Sphere of Destiny, only to find it guarded by reanimated Russian cosmonauts. Back in Purgatory, the heroes are approached by Hal Jordan, the one man that Alan Scott feels has enough willpower to control the Spectre. Hal accepts the responsibility and drops the guise of Parallax and once again becomes Green Lantern. But before the heroes can exit Purgatory, they're beset upon by Guardian Angels. Meanwhile, the heroes traveling in Hell are experiencing visions due to their dunk in the River Styx. Because when you get sticks all over you, you start singing horrible songs. And having hallucinations. But luckily, Faust is there, able to save them, due to his lack of a soul. 
and the fact that he hates the band Sticks. Back in New York City, the demons break through Adam Xanadu's protective shield, but Dr. Occult borrows Katana's soul blade to rescue her. Also, meanwhile, the JSA members have finally brought Dr. Fade into the mix, and also, also meanwhile, the team in Purgatory is allowed to escape due to the lost heroes subduing the angels and giving the heroes time to get back to Earth with Hal Jordan. The group in Hell enters the area where the fire pits are kept and are beset upon by the demon Nibrios. Yes, Nibrios, who engages in some McFightenstein, while on Earth, Xanadu zaps the demon with her glowy orb. Up in space, Starfire grabs the Spear of Destiny and goes all mad with power, while back on Earth, Hal and crew arrive to take care of the Spectre, much to Batman's displeasure. But the Dark Knight might not have to remain upset as the Spectre turns Hal Jordan into stained glass, allowing him to crash on the ground into hundreds of emerald shards. Now, like most middle parts of the story, this one kind of just... It doesn't really bog down, but it doesn't really go anywhere. It just keeps continuing the adding to the plot. There are more things happen. We get the reveal that Hal Jordan's going to come back to Earth, and he gets there. But at the end, you know, you get the fact that Hal's been defeated initially by the Spectre. So obviously, you know, since there's two more books to go in the storyline, there's going to have to be something happen with Hal. But this is probably the one that just seems like it's sort of marching time right now. But that's usually the way middle chapters happen. You see that in Doctor Who, you see that in any pretty much long-form story, so it is what it is. Of course, because of that sort of middle part thing that the, ha that the story has going here, that's why I really don't have that many notes. In fact, I've only got a couple here, first one being about page 5, panel 1. This is the line that John will pretty much adopt quite frequently for use with Hal Jordan and the rest of his well, and the rest of his use in the Green Lantern storyline when Hal Jordan came back. Hal Jordan says here on this panel, My name's Hal Jordan, and I'd like to help. It's pretty similar to the thing that Hal Jordan would remark on in every other edition of him being in the Green Lantern story, like, My name is Hal Jordan, I'm a member of the Green Lantern Corps. So, it's essentially his Wolverine catchphrase, I'm the best at what I do, and what I do isn't very pretty, so it started here, folks. Then, of course, a couple of pages later, you can see, you can just imagine in your mind that this is what Jeff Johns was getting all hot and excited about, because here Hal Jordan changes from his parallax costume to his classic Green Lantern costume, and a, and a pretty nice, you know, half-page splash here that not only has Hal with the sort of emerald fire glowing off of him, but with the Green Lantern logo again, so you could probably imagine that the non-finished artwork of this was kind of sticky with some DNA of Jeff Johns as he looked at it, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, you probably don't. Let's move on to issue number four of Day of Judgment. This one was released on September 22nd of 1999 and had the title of The End of the World as We Know It. No, I'm not going to put R.E.M. in here, thank goodness. Everyone was the same doing this. John Smith, Jones, Mitchell, Sinclair, Starkings, and Raspler all doing their jobs. Things truly look grim as the Asmodel-possessed Spectre looms over the New York City skyline, and the shattered remains of Hal Jordan, the soul meant to oust Asmodel from the Spectre, lie strewn across the street. 
but fortunately Dr. Fate and the new JSA arrive and put the broken pieces of Hal back together. With some aid from the Sentinels of Magic, Hal uses his will to reform the Green Lantern Corps and has them attack the Spectre on Moss. Up in space, Stripe and Captain Marvel wrest the Spear of Destiny from Starfire and prepare to turn, return it to Earth, while in Hell, Faust released the bag of bones he was carrying, allowing them to form into the hero, Blue Devil, who in turn punches the hell out of Nibrios. No pun intended. Back on Earth, Cap returns with the spear only to get eaten by an oversized demon. Heading back to Hell, Firestorm finishes off Nibiros by converting the water in his body to, to cement, defeating him and returning Faust's soul back to him. But this triumph is short-lived as Superman, Green Lantern, Firestorm, and Zatanna are unable to reignite the fires of Hell, and only an act of true evil, namely Faust's murder of the Enchantress, can restart the flames. With Hell's fires burning once more, the demons on Earth get pulled back to their plane and Captain Marvel is able to slice open the Spectre with the spear, free, freezing him in place and allowing Jordan to attempt to bond his soul with him. However, things get all kinds of zany up in here as Superman punches out Green Lantern and Batman and proclaims that he will possess the power of the Spectre himself. Now, of course, much better issue this time out simply because, you know, we're over that sort of midway hump and we're spiraling down very quickly to the finale with Hal Jordan going to take over or attempt to take over the body of the Spectre. We don't know if it's going to happen. There probably may even be more people in there to try and possess the Spectre. So it's starting to get really interesting. I've got a few notes for here. Um, page one, we get images of a bunch of heroes facing the demons that are going on Earth. In Russia, we get the Rocket Reds. In Europe, we get members of the Outsiders, Geoforce, and, uh, oh, who's this? Black Lightning. We get Animal Man and Buwana Beast fighting them in Africa. And you would think it might be Justin the Shining Knight fighting them over Big Ben in London. So we've got all these heroes fighting them, but no Guy Gardner. Guy Gardner, who is a native to New York City, whose Warrior's Bar is an important fixture in the DC Universe, yet not even a panel in any of these books does Guy Gardner appear. That is an epic fail, and I hold that against Jeff Johns right now. So, boo on you, Jeff Johns. Page 9, panel 5, I like after Hal has been zapped by all the Sentinels of Magic that he recreates the entirety of the Green Lantern Corps, of course, minus Guy Gardner, because Guy Gardner should be out there in New York City helping them fight the demons. Oh, wait, no, he's not anywhere to be seen in this book. My bad. Page 13, I do like this, that the bag of bones that Faust was carrying around throughout his entire trip through hell was actually the Blue Devil, and that he reanimates the Blue Devil in hell not essentially to do anything more than to be completely and totally awesome by punching out the demon Nibiros, which I thought Nibiros was the name of that planet in the new Star Trek movie, but maybe that's just me. Page 14, this kind of bugs me. The fact that these are all magic-assisted constructs that Hal's created, it's really not unlike him creating the constructs of the people in Coast City like he did in issue 48 of Green Lantern. These aren't 
the reincarnated souls of these characters. So essentially he's just talking to his own mind. It's not unlike that in any way, shape, or form. And the fact that he's trying to apologize for what happened to Kilowog, and Kilowog's just saying, don't worry about it, Hal, we've got bigger fish to fry right now. It doesn't work for me. It just It's just, again, Hal trying to assuage his own guilt by having these constructs he's created say, everything's all right. You didn't do anything bad. Then on page 17, we get Faust having to kill the Enchantress, because these heroes, even with all their powers, Superman's heat vision, Firestorm's energy blast, Kyle using his ring to try and construct up some heat for it, they couldn't reignite the fires of hell without an act of brutality, an act of evil. And it had to be done by the one person who is capable of doing that, the son of Felix Faust, the son, the person who for the longest time, did not have a soul and had to lose his soul all over again for doing this. So it's a really tragic event here that Faust has to essentially kill the Enchantress in order to restart the fires of hell to save the Earth. It's a noble... It's a noble sacrifice for the character, but it's one that kind of needed... that I think only he could have done. None of these other heroes could have done an act of evil that would have corrupted them far too much. So it was pretty much essential that Faust came along on this trek down into the into the underworld. But then on page 22, we get that sort of top inset panel where Superman just basically backfists both Kyle Rayner and Batman and knocks them out and then proclaims that he's going to have all this power. For the moment, I didn't know what was going on, but luckily in Book 5, which we're going to be covering right now, we'll get that revealed. And like I said, Book 5 came out in the same month. It came out exactly a week after this last one on September 29th. Same price and everything. Everyone's the same. Ryder Johns, Matt Smith, Pensler, Steve Mitchell, James Sinclair, Richard Starkings, and Dan Raspler did inking, coloring, lettering, and editing. Deep inside the Spectre, which could easily be a superhero porno title, Hal Jordan encounters the fallen angel Asmodel and engages in, in some Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leland 2011, all rights reserved. Back on Earth, the being-possessed Superman is revealed to be Neron, who'd used the Man of Steel as a vessel to be transported to the location of the Spectre. The heroes and Sentinels of Magic try attempt to subdue him, but Neron dodges their attacks and grabs the Spear of Destiny, allowing him to enter the Spectre's soul realm as well. In New York City, the heroes wonder if there's anything they can do while in the Spectre's spirit realm. The Spirit of Vengeance holds Hadsmodel, Neron, and Hal Jordan captive, asking each of them why he should accept any of them. Asmodel and Neron give very persuasive arguments, but it's Hal's desire to be punished, and not like that, you sickos, that causes the Spectre to allow his soul to bond with him. And with that, the Hal Jordan Spectre returns Neron to Hell and repairs the destruction of New York City in a blink of an eye. Crisis averted, the heroes and Sentinels of Magic part ways, while in the bowels of Hell, Neron is devoted to a rhyming demon. Much to the pleasure of Etrigan. Meanwhile, in their fortress of voyeurism, the Quintessence watches on the newly formed Sentinels of Magic 
as well as the angel Asmodel, who's been locked in a tower in heaven, an occurrence that causes concern with the normally ultra-cool Phantom Stranger. Okay, if you want my overall opinion of this story, it was really good, especially for a writer who, just six months ago, was only starting out in the DC Comics universe. He did a really great job of rehabilitating Hal Jordan, which we would see happen in about five years' time. Comparing this, actually, to the storyline of Green Lantern Rebirth, I don't know. I would put this up there with it. I might actually even put this ahead of it. Probably because it has more of an overarching storyline that deals with the entirety of the DC Universe. Of course, uh, the entirety of the DC Universe minus Guy Gardner, but that's just a niggling point that I'd like to complain about. But yeah, overall, for Jeff Johns being a writer starting out with a DC, this is pretty impressive that he gets a story like this turned out in a weekly basis and done really well. Again, artwork would have to be the only negative thing I'd have to say about it, but it's not like it's bad artwork. Altogether, it all comes together well to be a really enjoyable, engaging storyline. But I'll go ahead and finish up here. Finally, starting with the cover, I guess that's Hal Jordan. He looks kind of old. I think the coloring here gives him this sort of white look, so he looks kind of decrepit. And even though he does look kind of old, there's no gray streaks in his hair, so obviously he can't be possessed by parallax. Good thing, too. Then page four, we get the answer to why Superman was being so nutso in the last issue. It was because he was actually possessed by Neron, or Neron was incorporating himself to, to his body. So that also was played upon a little bit in that last issue where Deadman was trying to revive the knockout Superman by entering into his body, and Deadman said that he couldn't do it. So I guess that works. Page six says, Blue Devil gets hit by the Spear of Destiny and deflects it with the trident that he has. It causes the trident to show up as a tattoo on his arm. Again, this is something that I don't know about because my knowledge of Blue Devil is unfortunately pretty limited. But I'm assuming this is a way that now he can summon the trident without actually having to have it from this tattoo. You know, like you do. Page 10, as the Spectre is questioning the three entities that want to be his host, he chooses Hal Jordan over Neron and Asmodel, because Hal's desire to bond with the Spectre or to be the host of the Spectre is not because he wants absolute power or wants to use that power in some certain way to get his own means. It's because he's seeking penance. He feels that he has done wrong, and it's a nice bit of... Not really irony, but it's a nice bit of storytelling that allows Hal to redeem himself by having to be this person who punishes evil. It's an interesting concept, and I think it could have really been taken well. I, I like the idea of Hal Jordan, this lost and tortured soul, this person who's wrapped up with the guilt of what he's done, having to be the one who judges other people as guilty. It's, it's a really nice idea, and I think it plays very well in the story. Page 15, after everything is kind of wrapped up, it's nice to see Jim Corrigan come down and tell Hal Jordan and 
the guise of the specter that the that the souls that were in purgatory that helped them escape have finally achieved absolution that they've they paid for their sins and now that they're going to be accepted to their final reward in heaven it's all a very heady religious concept that's dealt with here but i really like it and i i like the fact that these souls of heroes that died with with not mortal sin on their hand but sin on their hands are finally being accepted because they did good in purgatory i i like that concept then moving on to the next page page 16 we get an image of the specter flying over new york city repairing all of it and it's a wonderful you know sort of dutch angle one page splash of the specter flying out in front with the backdrop of the uh Ellis Island with the Statue of Liberty and the Twin Towers there. And it's always kind of a bittersweet moment when we have these images prior to 9-11 of the Twin Towers standing there because they are such an iconic part of the New York skyline. Whenever we see them in this, it just kind of brings you back to that day and reminds you of you know the, the horror and actual tragedy that went on, not this kind of comic booky tragedy but it does sort of nail home the the idea that that we lost something at that time but that's neither here nor there but it is it's just one of those times when you when you see these images of new york city with the twin towers in it you know pre 9-11 it kind of makes you think for a while then finally as things get wrapped up we get neron being brought back down to hell and judged by whatever this demon is i guess the ruler of hell and he's determined that neron should now be demoted to being a simple rhyming demon and at the final panel we get this image of the actual demon the jack kirby demon etrigan looking on and has a big grin on his face and i have to wonder if the entire part of the story from the beginning to right now was the demon playing the long game whether it was etrigan figuring all this out knowing that neron wouldn't be able to succeed and playing this just so he could demote neron to his level i kind of hope that it was i think it would be and if it is it's a very clever ploy on john's for writing this out in this story that wraps things up. The Quintensons is looking on the uh, Sentinels of Magic and everything they're doing. They're looking upon Asmodel chained up in heaven. There is a possibility of that storyline continuing on. So it's a nice ending to the story. Hal has got his quasi-redemption, and it was all done in a matter of one month. You didn't have to wait over a series of oh, over half a year to get a storyline done. This, again, I think is a really good example of how you do a crossover, a multi-part crossover, and get it done and get it done well. So kudos to Jeff Johns for writing this, and kudos to you for listening to me talk about it. Hopefully you'll be willing to listen to me talk about more Green Lantern stuff, as next time out we're going to be covering more of how Jordan is the Spectre in Green Lantern number 119, where Kyle deals with how is the Spectre. And we'll probably get some more dealings with Donna and Jenny as well.
Plus, we'll be back to taking a look at the Green Lantern Annuals, this time checking out Green Lantern Annual number 7, a part of the Ghosts crossover, which, from what I recall, wasn't really too memorable of a crossover. We'll have to see how it is. Come in seven days and find out with me, won't you? Thank you. And I'll be here too. We need to learn how to end these things. Anyway, thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you next week on another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too. As long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys Podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones, off their album Let It Bleed. The best place to get this album, to get this mp3, or even to get the vinyl of this song, would be Amazon.com. And the best way to get to Amazon.com would be to use the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com. If you go to the webpage TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon banner in the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll be transported to Amazon where you could buy the CD, buy the MP3, or buy the album of Let It Bleed and listen to the Rolling Stones to your heart's content. You could also buy any number of other things there, from tools to electronics, video games, books, ebooks. There's just tons of stuff to buy at Amazon, all at incredibly reduced prices. And of course, every time you use the link at twotruefreaks.com, a small amount of your purchase price will go back to help the website. It doesn't cost you anything extra in your purchase, but it really, really does help us out. So whenever you're shopping for music, electronics, entertainment, whatever at amazon.com, make sure you use the link at twotruefreaks.com.